read this passage for us this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 11, beginning at verse 1 and all the way through the end of the chapter. So let's stand and let's read this passage together. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that not two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Lord, we are humble that you would leave us such a story. Uh, Lord, oftentimes we um, are uncertain how to approach the Old Testament. and We see this incredible picture of um, your provision and your kindness to your people. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are humble. Lord, help us to, to grasp, Lord, what it is that you want us to, to glean from this passage, Lord. Lord, may we, may we place ourselves under it, Lord, so that you can teach us through it um, the, the beauty of what it means for you to be our king, to be our savior. And Lord, to live in the context where that is true. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When I was growing up, almost every week there was a show on television called This Is your life. Now this was in England, so you probably don't know anything about it, all right? Um, but this show took celebrities from that culture and would surprise them by having a TV show about them. So they would get the celebrity and they'd bring the celebrity on, and then what they would do is they would kind of walk through their life um, and talk about different stages in their life. But what that celebrity didn't know was that they had contacted people from their life, things like, or people like their elementary uh, teacher from school, maybe a high school coach, um, maybe it was a, a neighbor that they, this person grew up playing with, uh, maybe it was a college roommate, and, and all along the way they would talk about their life and those people that were there, it was kind of a reunion, uh, but it was also an opportunity for them to share some stories 
And in sharing some of those stories, you got to hear a little bit about the person, not just the celebrity, but the individual uh, that was behind this particular celebrity. And then, uh, often what would happen is that they would bring into that context a, 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 a person that related to a special event in that celebrity's life. Because usually a celebrity has you know, one special thing that they're really, really proud of, or they really, really celebrated, or maybe that one thing that made them really well known. And so they would go into detail about that one thing, and they would bring more people uh, onto the stage, surprising them that, that were there when this one event took place. And the whole story was to say, at the end of the day, this is your life. All right? And it was usually a lot of fun, it was usually a celebration, and usually the people that were there were you know, people who were a little bit on in years, right? so they had some history. But it was a lot of fun to hear some things you wouldn't hear normally about those individuals. Well, as we read our passage today, if we were hosting a This Is Your Life show for Saul this morning, we would all confidently say, that what we find in this text, 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, is truly his finest hour. Now, if you could look at all the things that happened in Saul's life, this would be the focal point that he would want people to remember him for. This is a day in the life of Israel's history that is a good day, you might say, where ultimately the king of Israel did what he was supposed to do. And so we can celebrate that. But here we find this, this event of, of how God used him to deal with this, this evil presence from the Ammonite threat under Nahash and ultimately God using him to deliver Jabesh Gilead from them. It was an opportunity for many to testify uh, of his leadership and his authority and his skill. And eventually, on this day, as we read, he would be crowned king of Israel by the people. And we'll get to that in a little bit because you're probably saying, well, didn't that just happen? We need to hold on a little bit and see how that all, that all plays out. So what we have before us today is an amazing story of God's faithfulness, of God's power and work through his chosen servant, of God's love and care for his own people, of God's longing to deliver his people from evil. Now, it's not an allegory by any means. It's a real story. And yet, in studying this real story, there are themes that are just resonating from this passage. And I'm sure as you studied it, as you read it, you're saying, wow, wow, wow. And we can go off in all sorts of different tangentiary directions, and that would be healthy but that would also take a long time. So we want to kind of keep the main thing the main thing this morning and focus in on the, the real thrust of what God is trying to teach, not only us, but in particular the original readers of 1 Samuel about who he is and what he does and what kind of God he is. And if you remember, the story of 1 Samuel is the story of God raising up a leader to be a king in Israel. And that starts with him raising up Samuel. And then the people ultimately get to a place where they're not happy with Samuel's sons, because you wouldn't be happy with Samuel's sons as being leaders. They also are a little concerned about something that is happening across the river. Look, if you would please, in chapter 12 and verse 12. This is Samuel's kind of farewell speech. And it gives us some insight as to what was behind the people asking for a king to be like all the nations. Look at verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Aha! So it wasn't just Eli and his sons. It was also a presence on the other side of the river that was starting to rise in power. And they were fearing that they would not have a king to lead them into battle against this enemy. But remember, who ultimately is Israel's king? It's God. 
God says, you are rejecting me as being your king and asking for a king like all the other nations. But remember, God in his kindness, in his graciousness, he provides for them a man by the name of Saul who fits the bill for what they want. He has the kind of stature that that kind of king from all the nations would have. He's big. I mean, he's head and shoulders above everyone. So he's big. This guy can lead us into battle. He's also young, which means he has energy. He also is handsome. And who wouldn't want to follow a handsome leader? And so God, as we read last time, brought Samuel to the people, showed them by virtue of a judgment scene that their chosen one, or the one that he was choosing for them, was a divine choice, but also fit the bill, but ultimately, that in giving them Saul as their king, they were thinking he would be like all the nations, but God was saying, "Uh uh-uh, he's still going to be under my authority. And we saw that when Samuel spoke, Saul listened. He did what he was told. Now, what we have then in this passage is a general theme of God's salvation of his people. I know, it's very simple, it's very general, but I want, I, want to, I want to show you that from the text, first of all, before we actually pull it apart, okay? Verse three, we find this expression, and this idea, who will save us? The elders ask in the presence of Nahash and, and that threat, who will save us? Is there anyone in Israel who can save us? Verse nine, here's Saul speaking, and this is after some things have taken place. He says, you will be saved. Literally, it says tomorrow by the same time, the sun is hot, you shall have salvation in Israel, right? Hold on, here we go. All right, and finally, in verse 13, after the battle has taken place, now they're celebrating in Gilgal, he says, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So there's this driving theme, and the driving theme ultimately is this, how God saves his people from the oppression of the enemy. Now let me ask you a question. Are you glad that God delivers his people from the oppression of the enemy? What's the answer? Absolutely. And we're gonna see it on display for us here in very vivid ways. And there are three scenes that really are the structure to this passage. The first scene is the the enemy that threatens. The second one is the deliverer that saves. The third one is the kingdom that is renewed. That's not what goes in your headings there but that's the structure that we're gonna be looking at together. Now, let's focus in on what I'm calling how the world hates us. And I wanna kinda get to that idea by working our way through this first few verses. Up to this point in the story of 1 Samuel, the only trouble from outside Israel has come from the people known as the Philistines, right? That's who we've seen in 1 Samuel so far. Saul has been tasked in being anointed as God's deliverer to begin to deal with the Philistines, but he has not yet done anything. Now they are from the south and the west of Israel. But across the Jordan, also known as Transjordan, a new leader with a grand agenda has been brewing his conquest ambitions. And it's Nahash the Ammonite. In fact, we look in the next chapter, as I mentioned, you see in verse 12 of chapter 12, that that his presence has been around for a while. The people are aware of him. Okay, now let's pick it up at verse one again. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel, then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. 
Would you want to be one of the people in Jabesh Gilead at this point in time? Now let's just think a little bit about Nahash. Who is he? Nahash is the descendant of Abraham's nephew, Lot, by incest with one of his own daughters. In fact, there are two children. The first one was Ben-Ami. He was the father of the Ammonites. His half-brother, Moab, is the father of the Moabites. Okay, so where do all these people come from in the Old Testament? They come from places, trust me, and they are connected. So the Ammonites have been around for a long time, and they have been a steady thorn in the flesh of Israel. But now their leader is moving in to bring disgrace on Israel. Now, a little background information here that is interesting. Um, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the copy of 1 Samuel that was found actually had some more information in it that would fit right before chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the issue right now is not to say whether or not that should or should not be part of our Bible, but what is given here is actually interesting information to kind of get the scope and the tone of what was going on in Israel at that point in time. You'll understand once I read it. This is what it says. Now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously. Of course, they were living on the other side of the Jordan, right? Gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh Gilead. So this was not some kind of, I mean, based on that, if that is historically accurate, it gives us an awareness that Nahash is not just coming up to Jabesh Gilead and saying, hey, do this. He has already been out, busy working his plan. He's got the Gadites, all right, he's got the Reubenites, and now he's chasing 7,000 men who are finding themselves refuge in Jabesh Gilead. All right, so this is a huge threat if we take all those things into consideration. But now we notice there was a request for a treaty. Now, in, in the flow of 1 Samuel, it's an interesting one and only makes the events of chapter 11 that much more significant. It was another way, uh, by, by saying to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you, it was another way of saying, we don't have a king in Israel and we reject God as our king, so we are willing to submit ourselves to you. Okay, so it's just a reminder that although you know, we might say, okay, you know, things are going well, they're not necessarily well. There is a, a difference of attitudes among the people still, and they're willing to make this treaty. Now, it's daunting. Here's this army. Here's this enemy. He is saying he's going to gouge our eyes out. And he's saying, I'll even let you go for a number of days to see if there's a deliverer in Israel. In other words, they're saying, we want a king like the nations just like we requested in chapter eight. And even though Saul had been presented to the people, even though Saul had been affirmed by the people, and the people celebrated by saying, long live the king, the end of chapter 10, these people are ready to say, we'll serve you. But remember, Saul had not responded by taking his mantle of responsibility as a deliverer seriously. He was supposed to go up to the Philistine garrison there in Gibeah and do what his hand was set out to do. In other words, that means go to war. That expression, that's what it meant. But he didn't do that. He simply just went home and he was quiet. And it is after he goes home that we find out that there are now two groups of Israelites the first group are those that God had touched and are following in support of Saul. I'm just picking up the end of chapter, chapter 10. This is what we find. And there's another group that are described as worthless men who despise Saul and are saying, how can this man save us? And the problem is, up to this point, 
Saul has not given them anything to go on except to continue to say that. He's done nothing to prove them wrong. Now, if you want to give the people of Jabesh Gilead the benefit of the doubt, I, I would possibly say this. They had not seen or heard about God's new anointed one actually standing up against any enemies. And so they're like, okay, you know what? The best thing for us to do right now is to submit ourselves to, to you, to lose our eyes if that's what happens, right? At least they were keeping their, their lives. Now, let's a little think about, about mutilation here, what's going on. I mean, to gouge out someone's right eye, that sounds pretty rough, doesn't it? Uh, and I realize in today, now, we're, we're hearing more and more about the kind of violence that can come from certain peoples because of their beliefs and because of their desire to conquest. But to gouge someone's eye out was a pretty significant thing. Oftentimes, when captives were taken in battle during that era, um, they would have their, their right hand cut off. And the reason that would be is because their right hand was what they would use to hold their sword. And they were trained to, to fight, and they could not fight if they couldn't hold the sword, right? Um, other times, they were, they were tortured heavily. Um, but one of the practices was gouging out the right eye, and that was strategic. And it was strategic for a reason. Because if you were trained to hold a, sword in your, or a shield in your left hand and a sword in your right hand, what you would do as a soldier is you would hold your shield up and you would hide your face and you would look with your right eye to see if the, you know, what was going on with the enemy. If you didn't have your right eye, guess what you couldn't do? You couldn't do that. And your depth perception was gone. So it did kind of remove that threat from the people, right? But that being said, what was Nahash's real reason for doing this? to disgrace Israel, to bring disgrace and humiliation on Israel, to mock them. Israel has no one to, do, to deliver them, so Nahash thinks. The men of Jabesh don't think so. The worthless men of chapter 10 and verse 27, they don't think so, and if Nabash was successful, the claim of those worthless men in 1027 would be vindicated. So Nabash, in his arrogance, seeks to play with Jabesh Gilead like a cat plays with a mouse, right? He's gonna poke, he's gonna have fun, he's gonna, he's gonna tease it a little bit, and he says, okay, I'll let you go and see if you can find a deliverer, sure. And I'm sure he's heard the news, there really isn't one. Now friends, there is some some application that flows out of this that we need to, con we need to consider, at least this first section here, okay? There, there is a picture here of this world that we live in. And as you can see in my title here, the, the world hates us. Now I want you to think about this. Do you believe that to be true? You say, well, we're supposed to love the world, in the sense of love the people in the world, right? We're supposed to be kind. I have a neighbor who's not a believer, and he cuts my grass every once in a while, so he doesn't really hate me. But deep down inside, what the word of God says is that the world ultimately hates us. Those Christians, they're so powerless. They worship a book they don't even understand, if anyone read Newsweek, past couple of weeks, heard about that article that basically just said Christians are a bunch of dummies and they read a book they don't even understand and their principles that they live by are, are principles that totally distort the word of God. And if you want to read more about that, you can read Al Mohler's response to that. But that's the kind of attitude that the world has against Christians. They do not like what God says. They do not like what Christianity stands for. So they rant and they rave. Uh, this is what Christians do. They rant and they rave about morality with no foundations except their own fears. They think that doing good to others is somehow going to give them eternal rewards. The world, friends, simply does not have respect for us. Oh, they say they do. But as they get together with their own friends, they're laughing at us, they're mocking us, they're telling jokes that have you and your God, Jesus Christ, as the punchline. The world has no respect for you or any deliverer that you may claim to believe in. And friends, that, that message is beginning to get louder and louder. I don't know if you've noticed that. 
It's like it's becoming more popular to begin to pick on those dumb Christians, those simple-minded Christians, those Christians that are just so, so old-fashioned, they can't even think. They have to rest on a crutch. And so the world likes to claim that they respect you, but they're actually teasing you like that cat playing with an injured mouse, prodding you, watching you suffer and cower under their sophisticated ideas. And oftentimes we cower in that. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to respond. Now I wonder if that is how most of the church in America thinks about the world. Do they, do they see the world as their enemy? Do they really understand that the ultimate enemy, Satan, is behind the world system and is daily seeking to bring disgrace on the cause of Christ? I mean, do you think Satan's just walking around saying, oh, those Christians, they're okay. Just leave them alone. I mean, they really don't believe what they actually say. Yeah, you think he's that passive about it? I don't think so. He is like a roaring lion, Scripture says, seeking whom he may what? Devour. So get the, get the sense of what these words mean. Do they realize that if he can, Satan would love to gouge out your eye so as to discredit the God you claim to follow? In other words, by gouge out your eye, I mean to say this, to bring you down in some way. To cause some trial or difficulty to come your way. To cause some disease or some tragedy or some circumstance. And for you then to crumble under the pressure of that. And to discredit the God that you say you worship. And Satan goes, <laughs> I've done it again. I've brought disgrace on the God that you worship. Does the church realize that you can't make a treaty with the world without bringing shame and disgrace on the kingdom of God. You can't marry the two together. If you marry the two together, you lose. You lose holiness, you lose purity. Just like that bumper sticker, coexist. I'm not gonna look in the parking lot at all today, okay? You've seen, I'm sure, that bumper sticker coexist around where all the, the major religions of the world are kind of connected in this word coexist and, and what the bumper sticker really means. And these are my thoughts, okay? It really means this. Don't go around preaching or teaching that your God knows it all. Don't be so dogmatic about your beliefs and convictions. Don't force your God on me. I mean, like I'm chasing that car down the road saying, you gotta believe, you gotta believe, right? That's not happening. It's saying, I, I want to live my life how I want to live my life. And when you speak about your Christian beliefs and teachings, you are judging me. And all the religions can get along if they will only be tolerant of one another. But what do they mean by the word tolerance? Does it mean that we must accept every religious view as valid? I mean, just think about how nonsensical that is. It just can't happen. Does it mean that it is unloving to question something that another religion teaches? Does it mean that I must be silent for the world to be satisfied? Or does tolerance actually mean what it's defined to mean? someone who is inclined or disposed to tolerate the opinions and views of others. I mean, the, the last time I checked, I didn't see a bunch of Christians picketing at some synagogue or at some Muslim temple or at some other place, at least not ones that I know. There's freedom, there's a tolerance for the freedom of religion in our country, right? I mean, that's a, that's a country dynamic as well as an ethic for our Christianity to say, you know what? We're not going to stiff arm people to follow Christ. Now, certainly there are historical circumstances where those under the umbrella of Christianity, a very broad umbrella of Christianity, went into places and said, either die or be converted. That is not God's way. Okay? 
But I, I'm not, I'm not going to force someone to convert, but I want to share the gospel with them and say, hey, listen, I'm going to plead with you, but you ultimately have to respond to this. To tolerate means to show respect for the rights and the opinions and the practices of others. Sure. And we should do that as long as those rights and opinions and beliefs don't violate God's word or the laws of our country. So we've got to be thinking through this. But see, friends, ultimately, this, it's almost like there's, a, there's, a, there's this thing on this coexist thing, and it's like the, the Christian one is like standing out. Because the Christian one stands out with conviction, saying there is one way to God. And people who don't want to hear that are offended at that and are intolerant of that. See, the world hates us. We are in a battle. And friends, we must remember that we are in that battle. There is a war going on. That's why Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you guys remember the song? I know it's an old one, Onward Christian Soldiers. Let me just give you the first stanza and the chorus. Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the Foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching us to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. See, our past generation understood that the Christian life and the ministry of the church was, under, was, was seen in Scripture and can be viewed as a warfare. Now, not a physical warfare, but a spiritual warfare. Big distinction there. Now also remember what Jesus said to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But the world does hate you. My question is this. Are you convinced that that is true? And if you are not convinced that that is true, then likely you're enjoying the world wanting the world, attracted to the world, and saying, you know what, it's not that bad. Why is Pastor Rod so down? The things that I've told you are not my opinion. I've just taken God's word and said, here's what it says. The world hates you. And just like Nahash wants to discredit the God of Israel, dishonor the God of Israel, so Satan wants to do all he can to undermine the God of this world, our God, by getting to his people, his followers, and causing havoc among them. The world really does, Romans 12, 1 and 2, want to squeeze you into its mold. And it's working hard so that you will conform to its desires and it's relentless because it wants you to think like it does. The world hates us. Secondly, I want you to notice how the Lord delivers us. Now let's continue in this story to see how God delivers Israel from this gruesome and horrific enemy. Things don't look good for the people of Jabesh Gilead. Let me give you um, these three little uh, titles that go in the blanks. I don't want to get sidetracked with that. I'm just breaking down the story into sections here. That's all this is, okay? But first of all, we have this news, this news that comes from Jabesh Gilead to Gibeah. Verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, what's interesting as you... Um, look on a map and you read the story. 
you'll find that Gibeah is quite some way away from Jabesh Gilead. There are more towns or cities that these messengers could actually have gone to. So why are they coming to Gibeah from Jabesh Gilead? What is the connection? Well, in Judges chapter 19 through 25, we find another tale, another gruesome tale, um, another gruesome story, and it involves the sexual abuse of a Levite concubine by the men of Gibeah, that would be the Benjamites. The rest of Israel gathers against them, slaughters, almost wipes out the tribe of Benjamin, only leaving 600 men alive, those that went to the hills, Having done that, Israel is now mournful, grieving over the division that has taken place among Israel and are saddened by the fact that Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is almost wiped out and they want to do something to make sure that that tribe can be resustained. And so the leaders come up with a plan and they say, well, who didn't attend this gathering? And it was the people of Jabesh Gilead that didn't attend. And so they said, okay, let's go. And they went and they went to Jabesh Gilead and they slaughtered all the people there except for 400 virgins. Lovely stuff, isn't it? And the virgins were given to these 600 men and there weren't enough. And the story goes on and there was a way that they, the rest of the men actually got wives and so the tribe of Benjamin was able to be restored by the people who lived in Jabesh Gilead. So what's going on here? There is a familial, cultural connection between these two towns. When you're in trouble, who do you usually run to? You're usually going to go to mom or dad first, right? You're going to go to family. That's what's going on. These are people that are their family. These are the people that are their friends, so it's understandable why they would be weeping over this news. But notice that there is no indication that the people go looking for Saul when they hear the news. Wait a second. Saul, one of our own, was, was singled out. This mass gathering. Right? He was chosen to be our deliverer. We hear this news. They're not like, oh, someone go tell Saul quickly, where is he, where is he? Well, where is he? He's out in the fields. He's out working the fields. And so he kind of comes in, what's the commotion? What's going on here? In verse 5, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Now, this is where the story gets fun, right? Up to this point, we have yet to see Saul do anything king-like at all. In fact, we're wondering if we will ever see anything king-like. Possibly you're getting angry at Saul because of the great privilege he has. He's been anointed king. He's been acclaimed by the people. He's, had, he's been given charge to deliver Israel from the Philistines, but Saul just went home to Gilead, or to, to Gibeah. If you have been reading the story, you're left to wonder... Where are the men whose hearts God had touched? Just throw that in there. Because they left. And they had been touched to follow Saul, but where are they right now? But things were about to change drastically because the Spirit of God was about to be unleashed on Saul to motivate him to action. Let's just read verse 8 and, uh, sorry, verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. When he heard these words, his anger was greatly kindled. A Saul who up to this point had been passive in his role as Israel's deliverer is greatly changed. And I want you to get this and understand this. It isn't because he's angry that he's changed. It isn't because he's so manly that he's changed. It isn't because he's such a great powerful leader that he's changed. No, the text of scripture tells us that Saul's, Saul is angry because the spirit of God had rushed upon him. His anger then was the result of the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God had not come upon him, we don't know what the response would be, right? But the point here is that it's the Spirit of God that is the source then of his motivation, of his anger. It wasn't something that came from inside Saul, it was something that came from outside of Saul. In other words, 
um, God was at work through Saul. Now, friends, this is significant in the context of 1 Samuel as we've been walking through it. Remember, Israel wanted a king like the other nations. They had rejected God as their king and wanted a replacement um, that they could see, that they could touch, who would lead them into battle against their enemies. And by asking for that king, they were rejecting God as their king. But Saul had not yet done anything for them. So now as they're in crisis, God swoops down and intervenes. Yes, Israel has rejected God as their king, but even when Saul is chosen to be their king, God still remained Israel's king. You see who the real deliverer is. See, the deliverer here is not Saul, it's God who empowers Saul with his spirit. Now this is the same kind of supernatural empowering that we found in the book of Judges. Men like Samuel, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Judges in those times, moved by the Spirit of God to do what they were called to do. And so it is God who has come to deliver Israel by instilling in Saul a righteous anger directed at Nahash's evil threat with a violent resolve to strike out in defense of God's people. Now, a little, little side note here, okay? I'm going to be very, very careful, but it's, it's worth at least noting this right now, right? There is a point that we must ponder concerning the idea of pacifism here. The idea that we should not be guilty of war, therefore we should have no part in it. Now, certainly there are principles in God's word that says we ought to live at peace with everyone. We should turn the other cheek. We should leave vengeance with God. But that does not mean that we should stand by passively when others are being threatened or harmed. See, that's what's going on here. There, there's a threat. There's a, there's a harm that is being, uh, being addressed at a certain people group. And God is now going to send Saul to deal with them. So if we look at God and how he interacts with people, we recognize that the idea of pacifism really is not something that you can pull out of Scripture and stand firmly on. There is a time and place to defend those who are innocent, those who are uh, unable to defend themselves, and to do it with passion and do it for the glory of God. Now, we're not called to be warmongers. We're not going out looking for a fight. But there is a need to be motivated by God's truth to defend other people against evil. Now, what does Saul do under the Spirit's strength? He draws his attention, uh, draws Israel's attention by doing with an oxen what, he, what has been done with the concubine years before. And that's back in the Judges passage. She was cut up and sent out all across Israel. And so he does a similar thing. And notice what he says. It says he took a yoke of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying... Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the messengers who had come to Gibeah from Jabesh with the frightening message from Nahash are now told by spirit-empowered Saul to take a new message throughout all Israel. This is not a message of fear, but this is a message of unity. It's a message of coming together for a cause. And here's the result the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. So we have the spirit of God rushing on Saul and we have the dread of the Lord that now falls on the people. There is this motivation as people hear about what's happening and they come and they, they gather together under the direction and the leadership of Saul who's now speaking as a, <coughs> as a king to his people. So now we pick up the battle scene, verse 8. There's a few things that kind of build up to it. When he mustered them at Basic, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. This is quite a formidable gathering of men. 30,000 
300,000 and 30,000, right? A formidable gathering of one nation under God and King, seeking to be indivisible and seeking after liberty and justice for all. It's what's happening. And Saul was about to do, um, was to send the messengers back to Jabesh with good news of salvation, which would bring joy to all the peoples. Their deliverer was coming to save his people. I'm not forcing that in the text. Is that not what's going on here? Okay. And they said to the messengers, verse nine, who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, to Nahash is put in there, okay, just for clarification. Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may go down to us, uh, may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now notice how the spirit-empowered Saul organizes his armies. Having lulled Nahash and his armies into careless overconfidence, Saul acts decisively. And the next day, Saul put the people into three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the morning was between like two and six. The Ammonites had no chance. Three companies likely came upon the Ammonite camp from different directions and the people of Israel strengthened by God and his spirit empowered king routed the Ammonite threat. There is great bloodshed. Only a few Ammonite soldiers survived but were all separated from one another but there is also great salvation for God's people. Just labored through that story because I just want you to see the, the ebb and flow of what's going on here. It's just, it's really rich, it's powerful, it's daunting, um, it's violent. And let's flesh some things out for us here this morning. Hear this, friends. The Lord loves to deliver his own people. He loves to bring them out of darkness into light to remove them from the grip of oppression and into freedom that only Christ can bring. I mean, do we see how evil and how formidable Nahash is as a foe? And yet, our God can deliver his people from such a daunting enemy. How does he do this? How does he deliver his people from the daunting realities of an evil enemy? He does it by his own divine power, the power of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rushes on Saul, changed his heart, allowed him to think quickly and clearly, allowed him to speak with authority so that people took notice and listened and obeyed, allowed him to devise military plans Remember, Saul was a farm boy tending his field. And Saul spoke and went to work. The Lord was influencing and motivating the people to follow his leadership. Now friends, it's also important to throw just a little word of caution here. It's easy to look at this text and be distracted by the Holy Spirit rushing on Saul. And somehow moving into a discussion of, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of experience? This is not an example of hungering and thirsting after another experience. This is just simply God empowering a person to do his will. Now don't get me wrong, a careful understanding of, of the questions of, for example, what does it mean to be spirit-led or what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Those are really healthy, important questions for Christian growth. And it's really important to understand that to be spirit-led or spirit-filled is to be walking in line with the teaching of Scripture so much so that when you are, uh, what you are doing, what you're thinking, and what you're saying is motivated and guided and revealed by the Spirit of God. 
It is also very important to understand that if you are a child of God, you are now presently indwelt with the Spirit of God, and you don't need any more of the Holy Spirit, as if he's a commodity. You have the Holy Spirit who resides in you. The issue for us now as believers is whether or not the Spirit has us. That means whether or not we are humbling ourselves under the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we are obedient to what God's word says in his word, that we're listening and fashioned and shaped by his truth, being willing to be convicted, willing to be confronted, willing to make resolve and changes, willing to repent. Those are all ministries of the Holy Spirit working on the heart of the individual. So what God wants to see, us to see in this passage is that he is still Israel's savior, even though Israel is not necessarily walking joyfully under the authority of God, right? They want a king like the other nations. He said, you have rejected me as your king. And yet he is still Israel's savior. He is still concerned about their well-being. There may have been a king, Saul, but that king is only moving um, against our enemy because he is following the will of the Father. And any earthly king of Israel must be under the guiding hand and power of the heavenly king of the universe. So the focus is not on Saul. We must look higher to see the sovereign God who rules the nations as the one who wants our attention. Now friends, few just points of application here, right? What the church needs, first of all, is a spirit-empowered deliverer. And that spirit-empowered deliverer comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter four, verses 18 through 19, here is Jesus quoting Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. See how he's using the same language of anointing and the spirit of the Lord being on him. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We have a deliverer. We have a king. And his name is Jesus. He says, the Spirit of God is upon me. But what the church also needs is Spirit-empowered leadership who are guided, not by the ideas of men, but the, the, the ideas that flow out of the Word of God, the very Word of God. Oh, how the church of God needs faithful leaders who will boldly embrace God's Word as truth, who will stand firm on it through preaching and teaching, but also allowing it, that will be the word of God, to be the the guidance of the Holy Spirit for the church that they have been given the responsibility to shepherd. It's easy for church leadership to drift away and abandon a spirit-directed and empowered ministry and to replace it with some man-centered ideas that that seem like they are actually going to accomplish some things, but ultimately are void of any Holy Spirit power. And that's where we begin to to think of the church like a business or some kind of a a, a marketing strategy where we're we're trying to get people in and somehow grow the church in numbers. Friends, that is man's idea. God wants his church to grow primarily in depth. Now that doesn't mean that we don't want the church to grow numerically, but we're not going to be consumed with that. We're not going to come to the end of the year and say, oh wow, we have 10% more people in our church. We've been successful. Well, we may have been or we may not have been. Success is not measured by numbers. Success is measured by how are the people of God maturing in the things of God over the course of a year. We want to see people grow in their walk with God. 
And if we're so consumed about how many and how much money in the offering plate, we have shifted our focus to be in the wrong place. We are here to do God's work, not to build an organization, to be God's church, to disseminate and to teach as carefully and clearly as we can God's word so that God's people can grow and that those that do not know him can come to know him because the gospel is being presented week after week after week. That God is using that and drawing people to himself. We need a spirit-empowered leadership. But not only that, we also need a spirit-empowered membership. Isn't it interesting that in scripture we find the following verses? Not by might nor by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then we jump to the New Testament and we find this. It's John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And So <clears throat> the body of Christ So when I say the membership, I'm just saying we have Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church. We have those who are leaders in the church. Then we have the rest of the whole of the church all need to act and think and behave and to speak out of a spirit-directed life. And that comes by being saturated and marinating in the word of God. When we hear it, when we read it, when we study it together. The Holy Spirit is at work and he's doing his work and then we live out of that and sometimes we, we fall flat and we're like, oh. but we realize what the word of God says and the Spirit then counsels us even in our time of difficulty and brings us to a place where we repent and we restore our relationship with, with him again. And This is ongoing. And so ultimately what, what God wants us to see from this passage about us is this, without me, you can do nothing. Israel could do nothing. Their king could do nothing except for God's spirit moving. See how desperately we need the Lord to deliver us and how does he do that? By virtue of his spirit at work in the lives of of his people. I want to bring this to a close here. How the kingdom, how the kingdom frees us, how the kingdom frees us. <clears throat> God not only saves us from the enemy, but he also saves us to a new world order, the kingdom, and it's a kingdom marked by I have four things that just flow out of this last little section verses 12 to 15. First of all, there's what I'm calling divine grace that changes our attitudes, notice verse 12, and the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. I mean, they, they just want, they want justice for having spoken against Saul. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul graciously and with authority gives godly perspective and shows grace where others would have been more inclined to exercise justice or judgment. And friends, we've got to be careful there. It, it, that the context of the kingdom is a context of grace. It changes our attitudes. Secondly, there's divine credit. Isn't it interesting here in verse 13, what does Saul say and who does Saul say is the reason for their deliverance. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And we're just like knowing Saul. Yes. <laughs> this is a good day for you, Saul. Want to hear this again? Okay, it's not going to happen. But it's a good day. Because Saul, still motivated and moved by the Spirit of God, is giving glory to God, right? giving credit where credit is due. It's not about Saul. Certainly he gathered the people. Certainly he organized the offensive. Certainly he stayed focused in battle and did what he needed to do, but it was God who worked the salvation in Israel. Then there's divine will. 
These are all, again, aspects of this kingdom. This divine will changes our alignment. Verse 14, and Saul said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. What does it mean to renew the kingdom? All right, I thought God already chose the king and he anointed him and the people gathered and said, yeah, long live the king. Yeah, but they may not have completely believed what God was doing. They may not have necessarily seen that what God was doing was giving them the king that they wanted, but also maintaining his authority as their king, whether they rejected him or not. There is a restoring going on here. A restoring before God to say, okay, I see what you're doing. Saul is not the actual deliverer. You are the deliverer. Let's worship now Saul. No, let's worship God. It's a changing of their alignment, what they wanted versus ultimately recognizing how God worked, which ultimately ends up with divine fruit. You can just see those words that just flow out in this text, verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal and there made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. They, see, understand, they, they, they made Saul king the next couple of words are important, before the Lord. This is not just, we want our own king, this is a king before the Lord. In other words, the Lord is over this king. Secondly, they're sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. Right? This is God-centered now. And there Saul and all the men of Israel, what? Rejoiced greatly. Now friends, this will not always be true. We're not going to get up every day and experience a day of threat and a magnificent deliverance like this. In fact, life is usually a lot different than this. And so as we just bring some concluding thoughts, let me just throw a couple of things out here quickly. Number one, we are in a battle. I want to remind you that called to fight, we're called to wage war, we're called to put on the armor of God, because as Saul and his army are leaving Jabesh Gilead, having torn up the Ammonites, who's still around? There's still the Philistines to deal with, right? Today's victory doesn't mean tomorrow's victory, it just means that I still have work to do, Right? It's like the never-ending story of the Lord of the Rings, right? We want a victory. Next day, we have another battle to fight, right? The same is true in our Christian life. We win a victory. We do well. We honor God. But do you really think that Satan isn't going to pop his head up somewhere else? Or he already is. See, our old trouble still remains. And theirs was the Philistines. Yours may be some other kind of sin that you've been battling, some other struggle that you've been battling. You find victory in one area, but you still have struggle over here. Celebrate, but don't forget the fact the battle is not completely over. And that brings us to this last thing. There's new trouble brewing. And we have a seed of that understanding in verses seven and eight of our text. Go back, if you would, please, to this. It says, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they became as what? One man. Now look at verse 8. When he mastered, uh, mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judy, Judah, Maybe it was Judy at this point in time. I don't know, all right? 30,000. What's significant about that? That's just a little seed thought. Just think about when this was written and for whom it was written. At this point in time, the kingdom is divided. There's Israel and there's Judah. And as he's jotting this stuff down, this is some of the data that just lets us know all right, Israel came together as one man, but maintaining Israel as one man 
is now also going to be a challenge for any king of Israel. There's trouble on the outside. There's trouble on the inside. There's a battle going on, friends. It's battle terminology. It's a battle reality. Are we ready? We're recognizing that this battle is real. It's a great day for Israel. But the battle, the war, still rages. Will they lean on God and his strength to fight that battle? Or will they do it their own way? If you've read on, you know some of the story. We can learn to do our best to hold on to God, to lean on him, to trust him, and to keep fighting for his cause and for his glory. Lord, help us today as we think through these realities. It's a joy to see how you work in spite of our sinfulness. To see how you care for your people even though when they reject you as king and they, they long for another king and they're under this oppression that you come to their rescue, Lord. It just reminds us, Lord, how many times we have said no to you and yet you still love us, you still care, and you still work in our lives to deliver us, to provide for us, to care for us in many ways. Lord, help us to ponder the principles that flow out of this text, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, friends, you will have to excuse me.